Friends, it is indeed so good to see you. As Matthew said with joy last Sunday, we have pictured you often in these pews, and so it is so nice to see you face to face and eyeball to eyeball. And welcome to all of those who continue to worship with us in fullness through our live stream. This morning, we continue in worship, exploring stories from the Gospels that occur on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. Today, we are going to look at a story from the Gospel of Luke about two disciples as they depart Jerusalem and the burial place of Jesus' body in the wake of Jesus' death. The story actually takes place on the same day that the women appear at the empty tomb, and it's going to offer us a glimpse of Jesus and those first disciples on the other side of Easter. It's a longer story, so stick with it. So listen now for a word from the Lord with Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking, and discussing, Jesus drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to the two of them, what are you talking about while you're on the road? They just stood there, looking sad. One of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know what happened? Jesus asked them, what happened? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it's now the third day since those things took place. Moreover, some of the women in our group astounded us. They went to the tomb early this morning and they didn't find his body when they were there. So they came back and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some of us who were there went to the tomb and we did find it as the women had said, but we didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, oh, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. As they came near to the village they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going to go on. But the disciples urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. It's almost evening and the day is now almost over. So we went in and stayed with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it 
and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened the stories of the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions, and they gathered them together. They said, the Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. They told the others what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of today, for the opportunity to be your people gathered in various ways for worship. Come alongside us and linger here. In these moments ahead, silence within us any voices but your own. Speak to us, O God and allow us to hear. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. It's the hope that will kill you. Last year, Apple TV launched a feel-good, deeply insightful television series about an English football club, AFC Richmond, and their upbeat but incredibly unqualified American coach, Ted Lasso. If you haven't seen the show, I would commend it to you. Under Lasso's leadership, the team struggles to come together and to succeed. But as the episodes progress, they make some strides in coming together. In the final episode of the series, the team assembles on the pitch for one final game. You have journeyed with them for all nine episodes. They've struggled, but the sense of potential is palpable. At this point, all they need is one goal. One goal. That is all that stands between Ted Lasso's team and their losing story. One goal and they avoid relegation which is that embarrassing season-long demotion out of the Premier League down to the Champions League. Every team fears relegation. By halftime in the Richmond locker room, the mood is nervous, your heart's beating a little bit, but it's hopeful. Sure, they're underdogs, but they have held Manchester City to a respectful and frankly unbelievable one to nothing. The team begins to think, could it be possible? Could we actually do this thing? Can we defy all the odds, and snatch victory out of the hands of defeat? You lean closer to the TV. The team takes the pitch for the second half, and the minutes tick by, 
as the close of the game draws closer. Richmond senses the end and they make a surprising call. They call the lasso special. It's a trick play. It's designed to surprise and confuse. And it works. It works. Your heart rises within you as you watch the show. Amazed and dazed and confused, the Manchester team goes all kinds of different places, and the ball shoots off a Richmond player, Danny Rojas's foot, and it blasts through the goal, and there is that beautiful, glorious swish of the net. You're off the couch. Richmond scores. The crowd on the TV goes nuts. They've done it. The Cinderella story had happened, the one we had hoped for all season. There is jubilation and joy, and they tie the game. There's only one problem. With all the celebration that's happening in the stands and on the field, the team forgets that there's actually still just three seconds left on the clock. And before they can reorganize and get themselves back together, Manchester City, the stronger team, just easily dribbles down the field and scores that winning goal just as the referee blows the final whistle. Your heart sinks. This is not how that was supposed to go. The crowd is stunned. The Richmond team falls to their knees in agony and disbelief you can feel your own heart sinking with them as they realize that that Cinderella story you had invested in is now nothing more than a tragedy. The fans just stand there, shell-shocked, faces looking at the ground. Eventually, the crowd disperses, and they take that long, slow, inevitable walk out of the stadium and back to ordinary life. They had hoped, and every football fan knows, it's the hope that'll kill you. It's the hope that will kill you. I have to think that's what those disciples must have felt that day as they too walked the long, sad, inevitable road out of Jerusalem and back home to ordinary life. How did it happen? Just a week earlier, Jesus had entered the capital city to shouts and acclamations of Hosanna of cheers, of praise. And somehow in the final seconds, those cheers had been drowned out by cries of crucify him. And they had fallen to their knees in agony as they watched Jesus crucified. The power of the Roman Empire won. And they were once again just on the losing team. Luke tells us that two of them, Cleopas and another follower, we aren't told who, 
So maybe today, plug in your own name, at least for story's sake. They're walking that slow, sad, inevitable walk out of Jerusalem and home to Emmaus, just seven miles away. I think it's interesting, practically speaking, seven miles really isn't that long. But I think we all know sometimes some walks are longer than others. And the walk on the other side of disappointment and death and loss is always a very long walk indeed. In fact, Cleopas and this other disciple are so engulfed in trying to make sense of this losing story, this life that had been laid out before them that is now in shambles and pieces, that they don't even recognize Jesus as he comes alongside and walks right beside them in their pain and confusion. What are you talking about? He says. Think about it. These disciples are shell-shocked. They cannot believe what has happened in Jerusalem. And they look over at this man walking beside them and think, how could he possibly be so clueless? Everybody knows the horrible events that happened in Jerusalem. Everyone's talking about the losing game. They're not sure what to say, and so they just stand there like that stadium full of fans looking downcast and sad. Jesus, of course, coaxes more of the story out of them, and finally they get to the heart of it. We had hoped, they say. We had hoped that Jesus of Nazareth was the one to redeem us. We had hoped Think about it for a minute. There is so much meaning packed into those three simple words. Every dream, every possibility, every longing for how you dared to believe that your life might unfold. We had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped we had hoped. See if you can't once again find yourself on that road and in that story. We had hoped, they told him. We had hoped for a long and happy marriage. We had hoped for a healthy child. We had hoped for the job that was promised. We had hoped for the cancer not to return. We had hoped in the midst of addiction, that this time would be different. Think about the most frightening and shattering moment of your life and see if the entire story doesn't fit into the crevices of those three small words. Sometimes it only takes a few words to tell a whole story. Some of you may know that urban legend has it that writer Ernest Hemingway entered a bet with a bunch of fellow writer friends that he could compose an entire story in just six words. Hemingway wrote, for sale, baby shoes, 
never worn. We had hoped. It might be scripture's shortest but most devastating story. And who among us hasn't been there? I know I have. Walked helplessly and hopelessly down the Emmaus Road of shattered dreams and dead ends. It is always the valley of the shadow of death, where you wonder if you would ever dare risking hoping again. Theologian Barbara Brown Taylor says, it's the place you walk when your team you have invested in has lost. Your candidate got defeated. The person that you loved most in this world died. And it is that long road back to the empty house of piles of unopened mail and life as usual, but life will never be usual again. And what is so hard is that as far as the disciples can tell, that is the end of the story. Sure, the women appeared at the tomb and told them an idle tale, but they hadn't seen it for themselves. They hadn't experienced it for themselves. So death is the end. They had hoped, they had placed all of their hopes and dreams in Jesus, and their hopes had been dashed. It is the hope that will kill you, they thought. And they cannot possibly imagine a different outcome than the one that's right in front of them. The good news is, of course, is that none of their lack of vision, their hopelessness, their desperation or defeat stops Jesus from coming alongside and standing right with them in it. I think that's the first part of the good news on the other side of Easter. Is that when we're wondering if Jesus only comes to the hopeful or the sure or the confident, this story says that Jesus comes alongside us when we are disappointed and dejected and heartbroken and hopeless. Jesus comes to any of us who have ever lost our way, who have left the stadium, and slowly walk back home. Jesus is there. Joanna Adams, who is one of my favorite preachers, she says, there is no way that we can ever keep the risen Christ out of any situation in our lives. That's what Emmaus tells us. There's no hopeless heart, no barren relationship, no situation that doesn't allow for the risen Christ to come alongside and walk with us, whether we ask him to or not. On the other side of Easter, the story says that Christ is on the loose in the world. And that means that Christ is wherever we are. That's the first part of the good news. That they don't see him. Their vision is fuzzy, as Kathy told us. But Jesus is there. He comes alongside them. And I think the second part of the good news is that he holds space for that broken story. He doesn't rationalize it or dismiss it or deny it to say, oh, it's not that hard. You can always get remarried. You can always have another baby. You can always meet someone else. Now Jesus holds space for the hardest moments of their lives. 
But then the second part of the good news comes along. Jesus holds space for the brokenness, but then he, he envelops it. He envelops their broken-hearted story within a larger story. He takes the facts of their lives, which are the facts, that Jesus is crucified and died, and then he encloses it within the larger redemptive purposes of God. See if you can't hear it. Luke writes, was it not necessary, Jesus said. He says to the two of them, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into glory? Was it not necessary that when divine goodness came face to face with our sin and frailty, that we snuffed it out? Did God not use that for good? Was it not necessary that Jesus suffered but then rose again in glory? Necessary doesn't have to mean that God willed it or planned it, but it does mean that God was able to find a use for it. Necessary means that nothing, that nothing, no matter how dark or desperate or hopeless in our lives, cannot be gathered up by God and folded into the life-giving purposes of Jesus Christ. We had hoped they started, but see if you can't again find yourself in the other good news in the story. Was it not necessary that God suffered and died a shameful death on a Roman cross only to have God raise him from the dead, Jesus says. Was it not necessary that the weight of grief in your heart turns you in boundless compassion toward the grief and suffering of others? Did it not matter that you knew heartbreak so that when joy came along, you realized how precious it is? Was it not necessary that the pain of injustice kindled a fire of holy resistance within you? Was it not necessary that your failure showed you the limits of your own capacity to go at it alone? Did God not use it for good and for new life on the other side of death? Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer and rise again in glory, Jesus says? It's actually pretty remarkable when you read it start to finish in the whole text. Because it's the exact same story that the disciples just told. Except for when they tell it, it is sad and heartbroken. But when Jesus tells the exact same story back to them of his own suffering and death, that story that is now in the mouth of the living God is no longer sad and but it is something hopeful and new. These two disciples that had begun the sad walk home see that God's promises have now bloomed in front of them and enclosed their pain in the larger story of God. 
their eyes are opened and they can see that what they thought was the end is actually just the middle of what God is already doing. It's a possibility of a new beginning. And God used it for God's purposes of redemption and new life. I once heard a pastor who gave a children's sermon about vision and about blindness. And she overheard two kiddos in the atrium afterwards. How do you know when you're blind? One of them said to the other, well, you don't. You only know afterwards when you realize you can see. Friends, I don't know what Emmaus Road you have walked or what one you are walking still. But on the other side of Easter is a story of hope and new life. Even when all seems lost, even when it seems dark, even when the world, we look around at the headlines every day and the world seems remarkably unchanged. But on the Emmaus Road, Jesus says death is not the end of the story. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't erase the pain. But it does say that Jesus comes alongside us and walks with us. Whether we see him or not, he's always there. And that when he does, God can take the shambles of our stories, the disparate pieces of our lives, and that God can stitch them back together in a new and hopeful way. God can use them for good and for life. I've always loved how Frederick Buechner says it. He says, Easter means for you and me that the worst thing that happens to us is never the last thing. Easter means that's always the second to last thing. That in Jesus Christ, the last thing is the very best thing. I don't know about you, but I need reminding from time to time that even though I put my Easter best back in the closet, I was very excited to get it out this year, by the way. Even though we delivered all the lilies around the communion tables, that I often find myself filled with more anxiety than I do alleluias. And I need reminding that we do live in an Easter world, a world where Christ is risen, not a world where Christ has risen, but a world where Christ is risen. We live in a world when all seems lost, when we cannot see the other side of our story, that love can still come beside us and walk with us, and that love has the power to make our story new again. Was it not necessary that he suffered? There will never be resurrection without death. No true hope without having walked the road of darkness. But death is never the final word. Suddenly their eyes were opened, Luke says, and their hearts burned within them. The team gathered in the locker room after the game. And they realized that while they lost, they weren't alone and that they had each other.
their hearts burned within them. Do you feel it? That same hour, Cleopas and the other disciple turned around and went back to Jerusalem, but this time not as a long, slow, sad walk. This time their feet barely touched the ground as they ran. They gathered all their friends around them, and they told them a new story. Christ has risen indeed, they said. And there you are, no longer lost on the Emmaus Road, but on the way as one of God's Easter people. All thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>